Celine Sciamma. Thank you. Okay. I thought it would be cool if this lecture had a title, and I think it's going to be Ready for the Rising Tide. I hope this is English. You tell me. Um, but I'm not sure of that title yet. And we'll see as we go along, because yes, I'm still in the process of writing this pitch. And that's because, and I'm being honest here, and it's totally my fault, not at all your fault. I discovered about this lecture four days ago. I'd said yes to come here to meet you for weeks, but I just thought it was classic Q&A, which it will also be. So it's OK. If I'm really bad, it's OK. The letter mentioning the term lecture uh, took weeks to actually arrive to me. It arrived four days ago. So it's not because I didn't take things seriously that I am, that, that I am in that position. I care a lot about this invitation from the BAFTAs in a tremendous 2019 and beyond lineup. And I care a lot about being invited by the British industry, written about by British critics, and meeting the British audience. Because you people here get my job the most. Here I feel deeply understood, supported, and I am personally fragilized by the fact that you would leave Europe. And I'm telling you, French people are going to hate missing you. So four days ago, I read the letter describing this performance, and there were links of previous lectures. So I clicked, and I was immediately frightened because of this. This, because I saw this. This is scary. Imagine offering this as a gift to people for Christmas. Unwrapping it, they would be scared. Like, what do you want from me? Anybody super happy to get this would be labeled as suspect. <laughs> because it is scary. This puts you in a position of solitude and in a position where you have to stand for something. It might be the only object that embodies that. And also that puts you in a presidential mood, like high for mic stand makes you Freddie Mercurian. So with this podium, a word that I learned yesterday as lecture, I understood that I had the opportunity to say something about screenwriting in front of you today. And now I needed to find what, because I think a lot of things about screenwriting. In fact, I believe I am a screenwriter because I like asking myself questions about screenwriting. I do this job to have the opportunity to reflect and be part of the invention, the defense, the politics of writing for cinema. But I don't have a big synthesis a formulated theory. Maybe it's time that I try. With you, here, and now. I guess explaining how I write so far has always been in contradiction with the fact that I believe that my movies should be prototypes and invent their own language. Still, this argument doesn't stand, because even within an experimental dynamic, you still have to find a way of doing it, a method or process for searching and finding the ideas. The paradox is that you have to find your method because you don't need one. At least you don't feel you need one. As a screenwriter, when somebody pitches you something, or when you think freely about a plot, ideas come in very fast. 
you really find some narrative arcs, some obstacles, this scene where, this character who, I mean in hours, minutes sometimes. I'm sure screenwriters in the room know that feeling very well. There is no blank page syndrome at the beginning of writing because it's our job, it's craft with tools for building stories and it's a thrilling sensation. Screenwriters know how to write and sometimes this might be our biggest problem because this knowledge comes from a culture of storytelling. I think writing is all about questioning that. That's why you need a method. I do have my way of doing it. I guess at that stage I could drop a central notion here, desire. To me, writing is about having desires for ideas. Therefore, it is always about trying to build an architecture of multiple desires. The word desire is traditionally linked to cinema that has long been called the industry of desire. This idea is polemical on a lot of levels in 2019, if you want my opinion, but it is our culture. The one we grew up in, at least. Yet desire isn't a word we associate with screenwriters or words. It is associated with the idea of images and making images. As a writer, you are only asked about desire as an initial spark that puts you at work, the desire to write that story, or in a more retrospective, introspective, psychoanalytic question, the desire under the story, your secret desire. It is pretty rare that you get to refer to your present desire or a desire building up. Also because the process of writing is so long, it's like it doesn't have a present because it is constituted of layers and layers and it's all about rewriting. But to me, that's actually the point. The fact that screenwriting is the opportunity to work on your desires rather than acting immediately on them. Here I must say, that putting desire at the center isn't about making it organic or personal, that would be feminine and despised. It is to make it sharp and uncompromising. It is about the construction and being radical with yourself, not self-indulgent at all. It's about resisting easy pleasures and resisting the temptation of belonging. At that point, I'm sure this feels quite abstract, mostly because desire doesn't feel reliable as a method. Desire doesn't even have the reputation to be accurate. Can we trust our own desires? It seems like a very vast and mysterious feeling or sensation. But make no mistake, it's not because it's wide. It's because it is hitting hard somewhere and having a strong echo. Like a rising tide, I might say, and that leaves a chance to that title. I think desire is super accurate but you have to locate it. My job as a screenwriter is to work on locating that place where desire is precisely hitting. For myself, if I write for myself, or for my colleague director, if I were writing for somebody. It's about finding the point of impact and get accurate about what you want rather than think of desire as a romantic mystery about yourself. So, there's three steps. The first step is identifying and locating your global desires for a film. Understanding them and be honest about them. This takes time because there are several impacts on different zones. Political desire, aesthetic desire, production desire. You have to locate them and trust them enough to deconstruct them.
for Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I had several big desires, for instance, that once located were designing the map of the film. I wanted to write the present of a love story, how it is born and how it grows patiently, but I also wanted to tell about the memory of a love story, what is left of a love story. Both these levels were equally desired. And not compromising means crafting the storytelling that would allow both dynamics. I wanted to show an artist at work and write an artist model collaboration that would depart from the fetishized muse tradition. I wanted it to be a period piece, but tight budgeted because I didn't want it to be dusty and meticulous and mundane. I wanted it to be a contemporary form, even though set in the past. Those desires are mostly political, as you can see, and it can seem a little bit cold, but political desire for the film is also at the heart of the decision to actually write it, because it will be about finding hot solution to these theoretical desires. And there starts the second step. The second step is about working on a local level, which means the scene. The scenes are at the center of my writing process, each scene as a unit of desire. Technically, this is how it works. It is about having two files opened on my laptop, two lists. The first list is very free. It's a list of ideas for scenes, sometimes just images, a line of dialogue. They have no connections one with another, and often not connection yet with the plot of the film. For Portrait of a Lady on Fire, my first list was, list was having Adele and Elle run fast towards the edge of a cliff, actually setting fire to the character, an abortion being painted, a group of women singing an unknown tune in the night, a sentence don't regret, remember. And the last scene of the film, a long take on a character listening to Vivaldi's summer in a concert hall. Those are the desired scene, the ones you don't have to look for. They are your compass, the ones you make the film for. Those belong to the list of scenes you desire. They have their point of impact. Sometimes you don't even know why. You just know that they will be in the film and you should respect that a lot. The other file is a list of scenes you need, the steps that are inevitably building the story, the ones that are logically unfolding your pitch or plot. That list goes like this, the scene where the painter is commissioned by the mother, the scene where the painter arrives at the castle, the scene where the painter sees the sitter for the first time, the scene where the painter starts to paint, the scene where the sitter discovers a portrait, the scene where the maid gets an abortion. I'm going, I'm going to do all the film like that. <laughs> Those scenes seems much more simpler to actually write because they belong. They are needed. But actually, my work is all about making them belong to the other list. They must become desired, every single one of them. My rule is that not a single scene must stay on the needed list because it's cinema. Every, and, and, and then I'm not going to direct it. Everything you write will have 20 people working on it. So that means hundreds of questions you are going to have to answer. Some of them will seem pointless, but you can't leave one single question unanswered. Your absence of choice will have an impact. So for instance, I can take the example of a simple scene that is a very simple breathing moment in the films. The three women 
the painter, the sinter, and the servant are in the kitchen. They are silent. Eloise is making dinner. Sophie is doing embroidery, and Marianne serving some red wine. Writing the scene is five lines. Making the scene is answering to what time of the day is it? What's the weather like? What is the menu? What shade and shape of plates do you want? Where should the glass be stored? Looking at plans of the table we will be. Also give the actors lessons of embroidery. Design the embroidery weeks before with an artist. If the scene is not important to you, it will get the same amount of questions. So you have to want every scene very deeply. It is about caring. You have to care about every detail. So no scene should stay in the list of the scenes that you need. Every scene has to have its own desire within. The biggest job is thinking strongly about each scene in that need list and find something that hits you accurately, which means deeply. This takes most of my time in the writing process because I don't actually start writing the continuity of the script until those two files become one. The painter will arrive by boat and jump into the water to save a canvas. The model will surprisingly be critical when she sees a portrait, for the first time, rather than intimidated. The abortion scene will take place with the baby sharing the frame with the character terminating a pregnancy. Sometimes you don't find an idea that you have a strong desire for. Because sometimes a scene is about getting from a place to another. What do you do then? I used to think useful scenes should at least be shot for editing hypothesis. But now I don't anymore. I am being radical with this belief. At the stage of my fourth film, I decided to get rid of the scenes which had been sticking for too long in the needed list. I just erased them. It puts you in a position when you now have two scenes you want without the bridge of the scene you need but it actually produces editing within the script and confronts you to new narratives or rhythm. Makes you be more experimental. New power dynamics between the characters. It actually helps you be brave and depart from the comfort of a solution that has been tested, that works, and that feels reassuring. It makes you depart from convention. The hard part of that process is that when you go along with the convention and the rules of storytelling, you feel you are writing. It looks like you're writing because it's efficient and understood. It takes a strong will to go deep. You have to accept the fact that you are choosing unsatisfaction for a while. You are not writing. You are thinking about writing. When the list is done on this one file, I start to write the continuity in the dialogues. And I must say, I don't work at all thinking about character design. It's not part of my process. I never think about characters as fictional persons. I don't think about them out of the timeline and the context of the scenes. Like, what should she do? How would she think? Characters are never hypotheses. I don't think about backstories for them. I don't even give them surnames. When I'm asked about the future of my characters, I honestly answer that they don't exist. I don't think about their resume, I just know how they act and what they go through in the present of the narrative. Which means that here again, I focus on their desires. The characters are desire-driven. I think this method can be applied to every type of films and characters, but I am pretty sure it is linked to the fact that I'm writing female-driven stories 
women have been objectified by fiction and by the patriarchal law throughout history. So giving them back their subject status, their subjectivity, is giving them back their desires. Heroines don't have the same opportunity as heroes to have project freedom. Fiction is not a safe space for female characters. They don't get rid of oppression there. You can't artificially free women in fiction. So if you want to tell their stories, it's not about what they live, because they rarely have the opportunity to live fully, especially in a period piece, which is practical. It's about what they experience. Portrait of a Lady on Fire only looks and tells about its characters' desires because they don't have the freedom to project themselves. So it's about how their desire will be fulfilled for a moment. Desire is female's opportunity for fiction. And at that stage, maybe I could change the title of the lecture to Female Gaze at the Stage of Screenwriting. What do you think? So technically, even though Portrait can be pitched as an impossible love story, it is not written that way. It only tells about their possible love, their expense of it. It's not about their relationship facing the world and the rules. It's about the two of them facing each other. Of course, their story is impossible, but their love isn't. Or is. No, isn't. Isn't. Their love is possible. <laughs> so I decided not to tell about the obstacles, the enemies, the traps, men, leave the impossibility out of the room, because it will be waiting for them anyway when they get out. If you take a moment to think about it, this big rule that we totally follow, that telling about the obstacles between the character's desire and its fulfillment would be more interesting and valuable than telling about the desire itself, is weird. But this is how we learn screenwriting, as the art of conflict. And that leads us to the third and final step of this process. Once you have all your scenes as a list of strong desire and local solutions, you then have your narrative, and you can actually read your film and go back to this global scale. At that moment, you have the opportunity to fully see and understand the desire you have for the narrative. You now see a pattern in the addition of the, all the local desires you found in the scenes that tell you about your higher desire, your desire for storytelling, your reflection on cinema. For Portrait, it appeared quite clearly the desire was to break the narrative of conflict. And once you make that diagnosis, you should go for it all the way. And going all the way with this script was writing a love story based on equality. Breaking this narrative of conflict was made possible by the fact that it is two women meeting, so there is no gender domination. And then I decided that there will also be no intellectual domination even though it's an artist and a model, and also never to play with social hierarchy. Those decisions are hard to take because we are born and raised in cinema being thought that conflict is the natural dynamic of the storytelling, and that a good scene is, in a way, a good bargain between characters. So no conflict. Boring? I got the best screenplay award in Cannes. <laughs> so maybe, but also I guess not. <laughs> lack of conflict doesn't mean lack of tension. Lack of conflict doesn't mean lack of eroticism. Lack of conflict actually means new rhythm because of a dialogue not built on bargaining. 
lack of conflict actually means new power dynamic that allows surprises and new suspense. That's what is at stake in a story with equality, actually. Equality brings unconventional power dynamic to the screen. So basically, as a viewer, you don't know what's going to happen, which is the base of being both entertained and committed to a story. I'm going to end this by trying to embody this whole reflection into one example. So there was a scene on the list of the needed scene, the first kiss scene. I needed to fill that with an idea that I would feel strongly about and that you would feel strongly about. A desire that would actually talk about desire. So I began a list of first kiss situation and ideas, having in mind that a good first kiss scene is about the choreography that will lead you to it. That's what you remember for a first kiss more than anything. And also having in mind that a good first kiss scene must feel new. It must feel like a first time. Like if I try to think about who did it really well in the last few years, Spider-Man comes to mind, Spider-Man in French. <laughs> the backward kiss. Took really badly. I have no clips. There was an idea, an idea that felt new because it engaged both characters in another dynamic of power. I'm obsessed with this. We are not sure what it is, but it does feel different and it's unforgettable. So it is a good first kiss scene. I also wanted to challenge politically the kissing scene. We traditionally either have the surprise kissing, thanks to a rain shower, for instance, or the obvious kissing, thanks to mustard on the corner of the lips, for instance, and it is generally carefully scripted as they kiss, or they passionately kiss. And then it's on the actor's shoulders. It seems to rely a lot on, the, on them, for sure, because it's their bodies and fluids and interaction, but it shouldn't be. It's fake. It's not about finding the magic. Actors should always be part of the elaboration of an idea, especially with intimate scenes. So I wanted to craft a scene that would embody the sexiness of consent. Here again, working the narrative. People who are questioning the idea of asking for consent in France, they do exist. They are brave fighters of the culture of French gallantry, are saying that asking for consent will not be sexy. It will break the mood. Some of the French critics thought the film lacked flesh, I quote, precisely because to them eroticism is about conflict. I wish someday they would explain to me why in life being kissed by surprise feels weird and clumsy, whereas hearing, do you want me to kiss you, feels like being in a film. Anyway, at some point I came up with the idea of them having to unveil their mouth like they, they would undress themselves. So I put a scarf, scarf, justified by a strong wind, pressed on their lips thinking you would see their heavy breathing through the moving cloth. Let's watch it now, please.
dit que je suis toujours enceinte. Je vais venir la voir dans deux jours. Je viendrai avec vous.
was on a bachelor's, actually. <laughs> Not because I hadn't seen it, uh, no, I chose it and, uh, because of the kissing, but I, I wanted to make the, bon the to, to take the bonfire scene also because, well, it kind of embodies the kind of thing I've been telling you. Like, you see, like, the, the initial desires, these women singing in the night to an unknown tune, the, w the, the character actually set on fire, the fact that there is no bridges between these two scenes, it's just this, this hand thing, and it's another day, and you, and, but you, we don't need it, we're trying not to use this. Nah, not bad. <laughs> so when you put so much desire into a scene, you also have a strong anticipation of the moment of shooting it, especially intimate scenes. You want it to go smoothly, to share with your cast, care for your cast, that day came. First, we did the very long traveling by the sea with their hands touching, and then Eloise disappears and you find her in the grotto. We had trouble finding the way, right way to do it. We lost an hour. So when we began shooting the kissing scene, I only lied, had 15 minutes, 15 minutes ahead of me because the water was rising and strong waves were already coming out of feet. So the shooting of this intimate scene became five takes in a row with me basically shouting at the actors from the distance, being totally frustrated with strong waves coming closer. Reality hits you hard in the process of shooting a film. It's about compromising, so knowing your priorities. That's why you must take writing so seriously, be radical in screenwriting, because if you are radical with your desires in the scene, nothing will take it away, and you will always be ready for the rising tide. Thank you. Merci. Thank you, Celine. Thank you so much for that. And now my job now is to just make you keep talking. Okay. Um, which I'm very happy to do. I've obviously been having my own personal Celine Siama festival this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, and I would have said you were a very instinctive filmmaker. You've, you speak from the heart. Mm -hmm. But actually, there's something much more analytical about it. I don't think the heart is about instinct. It's like, I, like, it's like I said about desire. I don't think it's this thing that, you know, you, you should analyze it. I mean, knowing your desire is basically knowing your project. Mm -hmm. and, and, and speaking with the heart doesn't mean like it's just, it's, that it's obvious. You still have to, you have to work with what you feel. So, I don't, so that's why I'm saying it's not cold. I mean, it's, it's the beginning when you write, when you, you begin to write, it's super hot. And then you think about it, it becomes super cold. And then you have to find hot solutions to cold ideas. And it's about this, uh, yeah, this, this, this back and forth. What about the, the structure part? I mean, it must be quite hard when you've got your sort of fractured lists mm -hmm. and you're trying to put them into a, into a, a, a kind of cohesive narrative. Mm -hmm. How are you with structure? The portrait is 69 sequences, 69 scenes, mm -hmm. which is very, very few. I kind of have also these games of, because it's about the pace, the rhythm you want to create. Because it's two hours and 69 scenes. Like a film, an hour and a half film is usually 120 scenes. So it's also, I think a lot about that. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm looking for, this, yeah, this balance between the events and the time we're gonna take looking at those events, the impact, like how everything has to be super meaningful and, and full. And that's also why sometimes I, I try to mix different scenes, so there's different ideas that, you know, that would have 
could have created five or six scenes, and it's going to be just one. Mm -hmm. uh, like the bonfire scene, for instance, this, the, the fact that there's the, um, the stake of her being pregnant and having to get an abortion, there's also the love thing, there's also this social moment, and it's a bridge to, to love finally happening, being acted on. Mm -hmm. So this could be, I mean, those kind of fusion, have, have a synthesis of, that's the kind of things I'm, I'm looking for. But it's not about finding it at each time. It's also about finding a kind of pattern. Sometimes you find things that just, it just then spreads all over the script. Like for instance, on the good example for this on, on portrait is the Orpheus dynamic. Mm -hmm. there's, um, there's, a, there's a scene in the film where they talk about, they read Orpheus and Eurydice Smith and, and they, they talk about uh, the meaning of, of the story. And this is something that came very last in the process of writing the script. Like the script, I think, was already, we already began financing with it. But I felt something was missing. And I needed a scene, a Netflix, Netflix and Shield scene between the women. So, yeah, but really, because I had them playing cards, I had them drinking, and I was like, oh, I want them to talk about, it. I want, yeah, I want fiction in their life, because also the film is about that, it's about how art is an education to love, love is an education to art, and now fiction, well, you know. And so uh, I thought, okay, they, they must read something, and I was thinking Netflix, Netflix and chill, and I was thinking, okay, so it must be really, like, climatic, this would be like this, huge suspense and some kind of things you can debate over and Orpheus and Eurydice is perfect for that because come on, this is like, what, why? Um, and then I discovered that, this, I discovered, learned uh, that uh, it's a myth that is actually really, really criticized but it's one of the myths that feminist lecturers have been playing uh, with um, a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's actually about the male gaze. It's about like a man looking at a woman, basically killing her because he's looking at her at the wrong moment with bad timing. Um, and so I wanted them to talk about this and to all have their, their hypothesis uh, and with this idea of like, yeah, the Marianne saying like he's making the choice of the poet and not the choice of the lover because he's trying, he's choosing her memory rather than herself. And, um, and Hello is saying, well, maybe she said, turn around, maybe it's her decision. So I kind of like that thing. And, and then, like, but sometimes it happens like that. Like, frankly, it took two minutes. I was like, oh my God, this is gonna, this is gonna be a great thread in the whole script. Mm -hmm. Like it just, like that, just happened. I thought, oh, I was looking for something to do the link between those two timelines I've been telling you about in my amazing speech uh, <laughs> about <laughs> the present of a love story and the, and the memory of a love story. And this Orpheus thing was perfect uh, to actually connect those two timelines. So that's when the idea of Heloise ghost appearing came, for instance. So it was like, an, and that's also when in the end she sees her for the last time and it's this image has been haunted with, and, and, and Eloise sits turn around. So it's like this whole Orpheus dynamic, which is so important in the film. I, mean, I think some people like the film only for this. Mm. Just came up like in this hotel room in Trouville, 
with the, you know, just within five minutes. And that was it. This afternoon, rather terrifyingly, I read an article that's that where, uh, in a press conference about portrait where you said, I don't think I've got anything left to say. Hmm. And I was paralysed with fear <laughs> that you might not, but you've relieved us all. We are going to hear from you again. Yes. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.